right, Philippians chapter 2 in your Bibles tonight, Philippians chapter 2. I think I mentioned a couple nights ago there is a book called The Liberating Life of Jesus uh, that I've written that deals, uh, it's not the same message, but it's the same emphasis of uh, Sunday night uh, when we dealt with the need to focus on the person. And so it's called The Liberating Life of Jesus. Liberty isn't a person. And uh, the subtitle says, Finding uh, Freedom in Christ Between the Two Extremes of Law and License. And I failed to mention that it is available on Audible as well as on Kindle. So in the different w uh, ways that it's available, it's, uh, uh, you can find it. The uh, truth that we dealt with last night, would, uh, much of that would be found in a little book called Experiencing Jesus. And it's dealing with Galatians 2.20, but it's the same truth that we looked at last night. It even has diagrams about the old man, the new man, <laughs> and the sin master, and all that stuff. Uh, so a lot of uh, diagrams throughout that particular book. And then there's a brand new book uh, that uh, is called uh, Repentance and Faith. And uh, two sides to one decision. So, you know, obviously you get saved by faith, and yet repentance is a part of it. Is it two steps or one? And if you get saved by faith and repentance is a second step, then all of a sudden you now have works. <laughs> so it's not two steps, it's two emphases to one essence. And uh, so we go into that in some detail. Uh, small chapters, small book. Uh, every book I write gets smaller, <laughs> the chapters get shorter. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, gotta, you know, you gotta, everybody's physiological brain is getting messed up by tweets. And so we have to get shorter and shorter. But uh, at any rate, uh, that's a new book uh, as well. That one's not available on Audible yet. Uh, but The Experiencing Jesus and Liberating Life. And I think Friendship with the Holy Spirit now uh, is another book uh, is available on Audible. All right, Philippians chapter 2 tonight. Good to see you tonight. And may the Lord quicken our spirits and even our bodies <laughs> and our minds uh, to receive what he has for us tonight. Appreciate your being here. And uh, may the Lord breathe on us tonight. Now, a couple of nights ago, we did look at the importance of right focus. We'll see why that uh, is, uh, uh, how that comes into play even a little bit tonight. Last night, we saw provision. Uh, the stream of the life of Jesus from the throne right into our being and faith accesses that, so we're experiencing uh, Jesus. And we saw the great truth that we were baptized or immersed into Christ. And uh, when that happened, uh, the uh, Romans 6 tells us we uh, got severed from sin because Christ died unto sin once, Romans 6.10. Therefore, Romans 6.2, we died to sin. And so in the internal or immaterial part of our being, our core was separated, set free, freed from uh, indwelling sin. And so indwelling sin we used to be chained to, it was for slavery. Now uh, we're set free from him, he still resides in our body. And that's why when there's a trigger of temptation, you feel the pull, that's that old sin master, but you're not chained to him anymore. You got set free, raised uh, with Christ, that new man, that uh, regenerated spirit and the real you now consists of the divine nature so that you're not only human. It's God's DNA inserted into you and that part of you always wants Jesus. So you can yield to the old master who's not your master. His default is to the temptation or you can recognize that the real you wants Jesus and yield to Jesus every time. Now, when you understand the provision, the only thing that makes sense is to yield to Jesus. It would be the obvious right response. And I want us to see this pattern for us in a way that is remarkable from Philippians chapter 2. And though this is not the Gospels, this is Philippians. It's dealing with Jesus in his humanity. 
And I want us to see this tonight because it opens our eyes to how we need to think in order to access what God is giving. So Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 says, let this mind, let this way of thinking, this paradigm, this mindset, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. Now notice verse 8, in being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess uh, now that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean? The key is verse 13, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, verse 5, when it says, let this mind be in you, we almost kind of take it as a suggestion, but actually, grammatically, it's an imperative. This is a command, but it's a very positive command. Let this mind, this way of thinking be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, and it's referring to when he walked this earth. So what does that mean? What was his way of thinking? Well, I emphasized a moment ago in verse 8, it says, as a man, he humbled himself. Now think, when you and I think of the need to humble of our, ourselves, what do we typically immediately think of? Confessing our sin. But Jesus had no sin to confess. And yet the inspired text says he humbled himself. We've got to know what that is. Because if it's not confessing sin, it's, it, it's, it's got to be something. And it is the core of his mind, his way of thinking that produced his mode of operation. And so I want to speak tonight on the Jesus way of thinking. Will you pray and ask the Spirit with me to open your eyes? Blessed Holy Spirit, open our eyes tonight to the Jesus way of thinking. And Lord, I pray that would you would so impress our hearts, so convince us of the truth that we would obey this command and embrace the Jesus way of thinking. Lord, show us what this is. Knock out preconceived ideas that are actually hindering us from your real ideas. And so, Lord, I plead the blood, protect us from Satan's attack who seeks to deceive even religiously. And so, Lord Jesus, I claim our position in you on the throne far above the enemy. And in your name that we just read about, that is above all names, I exercise your authority over any powers of darkness that would seek to hinder tonight and trust you once again that that not be allowed. Lord, we need a fresh meeting with you tonight. Lord, we need that breakthrough that brings us into a whole new arena. Lord, would you connect the dots from the amazing provision uh, to all that you mean for that to, to play out in our lives. Connect it tonight with this truth. And Lord, accomplish your purpose for your glory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
1987, I had just come on staff as the assistant to my father at Market Manor Baptist Church in the Chicago area. And so uh, that arranged for me to get ordained to gospel ministry. And uh, uh, they, uh, the way they do this, the way this works is you have an ordination council. So he called the preachers of Chicago and northern Illinois uh, to form this council. So uh, they all came to the church and you have this several hour session where these guys sit there and grill you. <laughs> And uh, in other words, they ask you all sorts of doctrinal questions. And uh, of course, it's uh, meant to discern whether or not they feel the candidate is uh, sound and <laughs> uh, uh, sound in the faith, you know, whether or not he has sound doctrine. And if uh, they think so, then they recommend to the church uh, that the church go ahead and ordain you. Now, since that time, I've had the privilege of setting on several ordination councils. It doesn't happen often for me uh, because of what I do, but it works out occasionally. And in fact, I was on one last year. I remember a couple of years ago, I was on one in Spain. I'm getting ready to go to Spain. And uh, we're having this big council. And of course, I had no idea what they were saying because I don't speak Spanish. <laughs> and nobody was interpreting for me. But I remember at one point in the middle of this ordination council when they're grilling this candidate, uh, there was a big to-do. There was like, a, that's a nice way of saying, an argument. <laughs> that was not between the preachers and the young candidate. It was between the preachers and the preachers. <laughs> and so something was going on, and there was some heavy-duty disagreement, and it was getting kind of hot. Well, I asked Joaquin Lopez, my friend, I said, hey, Joaquin, what's going on? He goes, predestination. I thought, oh, they argue about that over here, too. <laughs> but uh, uh, at any rate, uh, then I got to uh, later on preach the uh, ordination service. They did interpret for that. Now, at these ordination councils, there are certain questions that almost invariably get asked. One of them goes like this. One of the preachers will look at this young candidate and say, would you please tell the council your understanding of the Bible word kenosis? And of course, the young man, well trained in the original languages, or at least going to try to act like he has been, <laughs> says, ah, oh, yes, <laughs> the Greek word kenosis means that Jesus emptied himself. And they all nod and say, all right, he got that one right. And they go on to the next question. <laughs> now, what I've never heard asked until the last council I was in when I asked it. <laughs> but otherwise, what I've never heard asked is, what does emptied himself mean? Now, why is this important? Do you know the word kenosis is in our text tonight? And it's core to our understanding the mind, the way of thinking of Jesus. So we need to understand this. We got to get this because this is this mind that you and I are commanded to allow to be our way of thinking. So what was Christ's way of thinking that caused him to empty himself? What does it mean that he emptied himself? And further, what does that mean to you and I in April 2022? Well, tonight let's look to the Word and the Spirit. The Word of truth and the Spirit of truth. To answer those questions, and as the Spirit of God opens our understanding, let's embrace the Jesus way of thinking I'm in. That means we may need to chuck our way of thinking because it may be different. And let's embrace the Jesus way of thinking where that is the need. So let's look at his way of thinking so that we can make the application. Now, 
to discern his way of thinking, we have to look at what he says. And so if you go to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we find his own words. And especially in the Gospel of John, where you have the longer discourses of Jesus Christ, and not only just things that he said, but where he actually tells us his mode of operation based on his way of thinking. And as we look at that and we see it repeated, it begins to crystallize. And in so doing, we can sum up Jesus' way of thinking, I believe, fairly, based on his words. I'll show it in a moment. This phrase representing his way of thinking. For Jesus on earth, it was not I, but the Father. Now, we're going to see it in verses 6, 7, and 8 in our text, conceptually or principially. He actually basically says this. I'll point it out here in a moment. Not I, but the Father. Now, in that way of thinking, you have two parts. There's the not I part, so we've got to know what that means. And there's the but the Father part, so we need to know what that means. So let's start with the not I part of this. And when you look at Jesus saying not I, there are two criteria based on his own words. The first is more obvious. Jesus made it very clear in his humanity, not my will, but the Father's. For example, in John 5.30, Jesus said, I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father. So very clearly, he's distinguishing a difference between his own human will and the will of the Father. He says in John 6.38, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And so he's very passionate about the goal of his leader, the Father. Now, this is Jesus as a human. And we'll explain more about that in a moment. But very clearly, he's showing us, hey, I am putting my will aside because I want only the Father's will. He was not after a particular box of the Pharisees. <laughs> he was after the will of the Father. That meant something passionately to him because he said it now twice. And then he again says essentially the same thing in John 7, 16, John 7, 28, John 8, 42, John 8, 50, John 17, 8, all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane where in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus makes it very clear, and you know the words, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but, finish it for me, thine be done. Let's try that again. Not my will, but <laughs> thine be done. Okay, so very clearly, it's not my will. Not my will. Jesus made it clear in his humanity. He was setting aside his will because he was embracing the Father's will. Now, that's a little bit more familiar to us because of the Garden of Gethsemane. We know that phrase. If you know the Bible at all, you've come across that, not my will but thine be done. The second part of his not I is shocking. In fact, when I first began to understand it as the Spirit of God began to open my eyes, I, I was kind of blown away. <laughs> had to keep investigating, is this really what he's saying? Not only is it not my will, secondly, he says not my ability. This is Jesus talking. Not my ability, 
but the fathers. Now, friends, this is stunning. How can he say that? Did he actually say this? Well, in John 5, verse 19, Jesus said, The Son, S-O-N, referring to himself, can. That's your ability word. Is able. The Son can do nothing from himself. Well, that's a shock. How can he say that? Did he really say that? Maybe he misspoke. <laughs> well, obviously he didn't misspeak. Well, maybe we're misunderstanding. Well, a few verses later in John 5, verse 30, he puts it this way in the personal uh, first person. He says, I can. There's your ability word. I'm able. I can, from my own self, do nothing. That's what he said. Now, what did he mean? Now, obviously, Jesus could get up in the morning. <laughs> he could get dressed. <laughs> he could eat breakfast. But he's not talking about the physical realm. There's something that transpired when Jesus became a man that is causing him to say this. And he's talking about the spiritual realm because in the spiritual realm it demands spiritual energy. And there's something that occurred in Jesus becoming a man that is causing him to say, I am not able to do anything in that spiritual realm. Let's read on. In John 8, 28, he says, I do nothing from myself, but as my Father. In John 12, 49, I have not spoken out of myself, but the Father. John 14, 10, I speak not from myself, but the Father. See, over and over again, not only is it not my will, but the Father's, it's not my ability, but the Father's. Now, there's two questions that reveal our mode of operation and therefore the underneath what we believe uh, when it comes to our way of thinking. Who or what is your leader and who or what is your power source? So I'm tapping into some words I've been using here the last couple of nights. For Jesus, he makes it very clear on the first question who the leader is. Not my will, but the Father. His focus was on the leader and the leader was the person of God the Father. And then when he says, I'm not able, but the Father... He's telling us that his power source in his humanity was the same person, the Father. So, for Jesus, it's not my will, not my ability. Have we come to this? Well, we'll say more about that in a moment. But now, let's chew on this for a second. How could Jesus come to the point of saying, not my will and not my ability, and not be lying. I mean, this is Jesus. How can he say not my will? How can he say not my ability? And not be lying. Well, the answer is found in understanding this word and concept, kenosis. Because that word is in our text. And we need to understand that in this emptied himself concept, there are two phases. And if we don't catch both phases, we miss the power of all that's going on here. In the first phase, Jesus, as God, emptied himself. Let me change the words to this just to help our understanding. He set aside, he emptied himself of, that is, he set aside the reputation 
and the free exercise of the deity that he still possessed. Now, let's look at the text. The end of verse 5 says, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, verse 6, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Okay, that lets us know he is God. He's always been God. He always will be God. When he walked this earth, he was still God. He never set aside his deity. Are you with me? That's important to understand. But, verse 7 says, and then it gives the translation of the word kenosis. But made himself of no reputation. Let me stop right there. You know, when Jesus was born of a virgin and laid in a manger outside of a very select few people on planet Earth, nobody else knew that was God. He didn't have the reputation of deity in the manger. Only those that were supernaturally informed knew that's God in the flesh. God in a human body. Everybody else, of course, they didn't, you know, nobody hardly paying attention, but there with uh, all that was going on in Bethlehem and in our world, and in that time period, there were 300 million people on planet Earth. Not very many compared to today. But of those 300 million, outside of a handful, nobody knew that was God. Why? Because he had set aside the majesty and the glory of heaven, of his deity. He still had deity. He didn't set aside deity. He set aside the reputation of deity in order to become a man. Because you can't become a man and have the reputation of deity. But not only did he set aside that reputation, he emptied himself, he set aside the free exercise of deity. Let me word that this way. He set aside using the attributes of deity that he still possessed. You say, well, why did he do that? In order to become a man. Though he still possessed those attributes, he's still God. In order to be a man, he had to set aside using the divine attributes that he still possessed. And when you witness to people that wonder how Jesus could be God and man at the same time, the answer is kenosis. Because though he was still deity, though he still uh, was almighty God, he set aside the reputation of that and he set aside using the divine attributes so that he could become fully a man. Because we don't have those attributes. But now we got a problem, and so it seems to us. If he set aside using divine attributes, how is he going to pull off miracles? If he set aside the use of his supernatural powers that he still possessed, how is he going to do supernatural ministry? Ah, see, now we understand, begin to understand why he says, I'm not able. It's because he set aside using that supernatural power, the divine attributes that he still possessed. So how's he going to do it? This brings us to that word, he humbled himself. Here's his humility. Not confession of sin, he didn't have sin. But now, here's the second phase of the kenosis. As a man, he set aside his own human will. Remember, not my will. For the divine will, but the Father's. And he set aside his own human ability for the Father's ability. 
Now notice what it says in verse 8. As a man. See, in his humanity, because of this kenosis. Because he's now functioning as a man. He's still God, but he's set aside using the divine attributes. And therefore, he became obedient. Now look, you can't become obedient without setting aside your will and embracing the will of the one you're obeying. And so when he became obedient, he's proving not my will but the Father's, not my ability but the Father's. Now, why is that important? Because verse 5 commands you and me, let this mind, let this way of thinking be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now let's think about it. The first phase of this kenosis we can't do. You and I cannot set aside the reputation of deity. (laughs) We don't have it. And those that think they do, really don't. (laughs) We can't set aside uh, uh, using divine attributes because we don't have those attributes to set aside. But the second part of this, what Jesus did as a man, we can and must follow because what it is is faith. And faith is the one thing you and I can do. (laughs) Because faith is not a work. (laughs) It depends upon God. So how did Jesus do that? Not my will, but his. Not my ability, but his. See, that's Jesus' dependence as a man upon the Father. And see, that part we must follow. He emptied himself. That's the same idea here. He says, not my will, but the Father's. Not my ability, but the Father's. Now, it's not just that he says, not my will. He embraced, he took, he depended on the Father's will and the Father's power. And how did that all play out? Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that the Bible gives us an amazing look at the human Christ in 1 Timothy 3.16 where the Scripture says, God was manifested in the flesh. So that's Jesus coming into our world and what we call the incarnation. And then it says, justified in the spirit. Now, wait a second. We talked about justification the other night. Sinners need to be justified. He was not a sinner. Why does it say justified in the spirit? Well, I won't detail all the grammar. The idea is this. He allowed himself to live righteously through the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that when Jesus was conceived in the womb, he was indwelt by the Spirit? We're told this by the angel, Gabriel, that talked to the young mother, Mary, probably a teenager, and was explaining to her how this virgin birth was going to take place and said, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. The power of the highest is going to overshadow you. So that according to Matthew 1 and verse 20, the angel said that which will be conceived in you will be conceived of or from the Holy Spirit. Now you and I are indwelt by the Spirit at the new birth when we put our faith in Jesus. Jesus, in his humanity, was indwelt by the Spirit at conception. Now, I want you to think about the condescension of both God the Son and God the Spirit. They're both in the womb of a teenager. Amazing. Then, of course, after nine months, he was born. And we have 30 years 
that uh, a lot of theologians just refer to as the silent years because we're not told a whole lot, but it's his childhood years, his teenage years, and his 20s. Those 30 years, we are told a little bit. Did you know that the indication of the text is Jesus was filled with the Spirit in those 30 years? Now, that's not just a theological conclusion because we're talking about Jesus. No, even back in Luke 2, when Jesus was about 12, the text says of him that he was filled with wisdom. Now, don't miss this. And the grace of God was upon him. Grace, grace. You mean Jesus did what he did as a human by grace? It's what it says. His submission to his parents when he was in the home. His living victoriously, as we would call it, was by grace. It was by supernatural enablement through the Holy Spirit to do the Father's will. It was by grace. And so not only was he indwelt by the Spirit at conception, he was filled with the Spirit in those first 30 years, but then he comes to the entrance of his public ministry. And you know there's a new need or new level of empowerment that's needed uh, when it comes to ministry to others. Let me break it down uh, uh, to how it works for us to help us understand this for Christ. For us, we've seen that Christ is in us when we, by faith, yield to his leadership and power. We take his, say, for example, his life, therefore his patience and his purity. Okay, the Spirit imparts to us his life. That's Christ in us, to us. That's holiness. But when it comes to ministering to others, there's a greater need of the ministry's I mean, uh, of the Spirit's ministry. Not just the Spirit in us to us, but the Spirit through us, on us, around us, out to others, so that those we interact with are touched by the divine life of the Spirit of God. So for Jesus, he'd been filled with the Spirit for 30 years. He lived a holy life for 30 years. But now he's going to enter public ministry, and there's a new need for the greater ministry of the Spirit, not just in him to him, but through him, on him, around him to others. So what did he do? Well, the Gospel of Luke tells us that he went to a guy named John the Baptist. And he asked John to baptize him. Well, what's the significance of that? Well, as he came out of the water, Luke 3 tells us he was praying. It says, and praying. Have you ever noticed those two words? Isn't it an unusual time to have a prayer meeting? I've been at a lot of baptismal services. You have too. Quite frankly, I've never seen a prayer meeting right at the end of a baptism. Except in Luke 3. It says, and praying. Now friends, for the inspired text to insert that, it means something big was going on. There is something on the heart of Jesus that is so important the inspired text tells us that as he came out of the water there at the Jordan River when John the Baptist baptized him he was praying well what was he praying the text does not tell us the prayer but it implies the prayer because it gives us the answer to the prayer in the very next verse because the next verse says and the Spirit of God descended in bodily shape like a dove upon him now what did we learn last night water baptism pictures spirit baptism see john the baptist said i baptize you with water but there comes one after me he will baptize you with the holy spirit and fire now for jesus 
he was not baptized with fire because there was no sin to purge. So he was baptized with the Holy Spirit as a dove <laughs> coming upon him. But the point is, water baptism pictures spirit baptism. So why did Jesus get baptized? People say, well, to set an example. That's true, but that's secondary. The primary reason why Jesus got baptized is because water baptism pictures spirit baptism, and that's what he was praying about. He was asking for the mighty baptism of the Holy Spirit, and he received that baptism. And now he's empowered for service. And we know that as well because in the next event that takes place, Luke 4 verse 1, it says, Jesus being full of the Spirit was then led of the Spirit into the wilderness. That lets us know that his victory over Satan was directly tied to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Then it says in Luke 4 verse 14, he returned in the power. There's your ability word. He returned in the ability of the Spirit. Remember what he said? I'm not able. But now he's accessed the ability uh, because he's, he's gone to the Father and the Father, uh, uh, he's gone to the Father to embrace his will and his power. And so now the Spirit of the Father comes on him. And, it, and the Bible says he returned in the ability, in the power of the Holy Spirit and he taught. And so those next words tell us that his teaching, his public ministry, his impact on those around him is directly tied to the ability, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And he goes into the synagogue and they hand him Isaiah 61 and he reads the words, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach. And so it's the Spirit's ministry for service. Now, I will not take time to detail it tonight, but it is all over the place in the Gospels that Jesus did what he did because he was receiving this constant flow of leadership and power from the Father through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But let me jump to the cross. In Hebrews, Hebrews 9.14, the, the Scripture says that he, Jesus, through the Spirit, offered himself without spot unto God. Friends, what he did on the cross was through the Spirit. Why? Because of kenosis. Because of what he had set aside. And so his whole way of thinking was, not I, not my will, not my ability, but the Father's through the ministry of the Spirit. Now, when we say not I, we typically would interpret that as, and rightly so, as denying self. That's what we're talking about. But you got to get to but the fathers. That's what it was for Jesus. We'll see the application for us here in a moment. So you're trusting the Father's will and the Father's power. That's what he was doing. Now, there's a phrase that sometimes gets misused, but in its original usage, it's a great phrase. Let go and let God. Now, some misuse that into a free-for-all passivity. Now, here's what it means. This is what it meant when Hudson Taylor and others used it 150 years ago. It's let go of self-will and self-power. See, Jesus, not my will, not my ability, but God as you embrace his will and his power. That's what let go and let God means. Let go of self-will and self-dependent self-power as you embrace God's will in God's power. Now, that brings us to the big point of this so we can apply it. In the incarnation, which is simply the big word for Jesus coming into our world as a man, because of having taken on the limitations of humanity through kenosis. In other words, because Jesus set aside the reputation and especially 
using the attributes of deity that he still possessed so that he was functioning as a man. Okay, so because Jesus took on the limitations of being a man, humanity, what that means then is that Jesus did what he did on earth, not as God, but as man in dependence upon God, just like you and I are supposed to. And that means that his victory, his living right, his holiness, his effectiveness was not because he is God, though he is God. It's because he was functioning as a man in dependence on God like we're supposed to. See, it's what it says. He humbled himself. How? By becoming obedient to the Father. Not my will, but the Father's. Not my ability, but the Father's. Now, friends, this helps us understand. That's very helpful in understanding that verse, that Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. How many times have we read that verse or heard that verse, okay, Jesus was tempted in all points like as we yet without sin. Well, obviously, he's God. We missed it. Because though he is God, he wasn't functioning as God. He was functioning as man in dependence upon God. You know what that means? It means he was tempted. Now, his temptation would not have been internal like the indwelling sin factor that we talked about last night. It would have been external temptation like the first Adam. He was tempted, just like the first Adam who blew it, messed it up for the rest of us. <laughs> he was tempted in all points. And you read in the Gospel of Mark, and the verb tense is, when he was there tempted by Satan, he was tempted all 40 days. And then we're told the last three temptations, and they parallel lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He was tempted in all points like as we, yet without sin. Now that has meaning. It's not just because he was God. It's because as a man, he trusted in God like you and I are supposed to. How many times do we read that Jesus prayed? Well, friends, if he's functioning as God, every one of those prayer meetings is a sham. And though he is God, he wasn't functioning as God. He's functioning as a man. You know why he prayed? Because he needed to. Do you know what Jesus did before he chose the 12 apostles? He prayed all night. What do you think he was praying? Father, what's your will? Peter? Oh, you got to be kidding. <laughs> you see, he was getting the will of the Father. And then he played it out. And we read that he would get up and go out and pray. And there were times when the pressure of the ministry was strong. And what did he do? He would pray for renewal, for a, a, a refueling. Because he was functioning as a man. Amazing. His victory was by faith. Just like ours is supposed to be it wasn't just automatic because he's God because he was functioning as man and friends in all of this you see he valued the ministry of the Holy Spirit and I realize today because of the excesses of some in the name of the Spirit others have ignored the Spirit because they don't want to be excessive well I'm going to tell you either way the devil wins 
whether it gets people beyond the Bible into excesses in the name of the Spirit, or it gets other people uh, to just ignore the Spirit in the name of the Word. Now, friends, he valued the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the fact is, if the human Jesus was not willing to just do his own will in his own power, but instead said, not my will but the Father's, not my ability but the Father's. If he understood the need for the power of God through the Spirit, how much more should we? Now, what's interesting about this, in John 17, just a couple hours before the cross, Jesus in his prayer made it very clear he was in the Father and the Father was in him. And that's why the summation of his way of thinking is, not I but the Father. But then he went to the cross and he finished his work, and he rose again from the dead, and he was exalted to the right hand of the Father, and he received the promise of the Spirit, and he sent the Spirit, so that as we saw last night, the moment you put your faith in Jesus, you are placed into Christ as he places his Spirit into you. Now think, for him, he was in the Father, and the Father was in him, so it's not I but the Father. For us, we're placed into Christ, and he's placed into us, so our way of thinking should be not I but Christ. There it is. That's how we embrace his way of thinking. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So let's jump to the end of our text to begin to put the pieces together here. The end of verse 12 says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, that can't mean, you know, suck in and do this on your own. <laughs> because not even Jesus did that. So what does it mean? Well, the next verse is the key. For it is God which worketh in you. See, divine initiation. Both to will, see, not my will but his, and to do, not my ability but his, of his good pleasure. You remember how Jesus said in his humanity, I can, I'm, I, I'm able, I, I can do nothing of my, of my own self. In other words, on my own, I'm not able to do anything. Okay, so he uses the term nothing. What did Jesus say about you and me in John 15? He said, without me, you can do it's the same word. And just as he said in his humanity, though he was sinless, he said, I can do nothing without the power, with the, without the will and power of the Father. The fact is, he says to us, without me, without my leadership and power, you can do nothing. Who do we think we are to think we can do without the power of the Holy Spirit? That's why we fail. We either fall flat, and it's obvious, as we crash and burn, or we produce the form of godliness and deny the power thereof. One's unrighteous, the other's self-righteous. Both are wicked in God's sight. So we have to grab a hold of this. It is God that worketh in you, both to will, not my will but His, and to do, not my ability of His, but His, of His good pleasure. See, it's not our power for His will, because without Him we can do nothing. Nor is it His power for my will. Now, God, here's the plan. Would you empower us for it? You know, that's what many of our prayer meetings are. God, here's the plan. You know, we could do like David did and ask, God, should I do this? I've been reading last couple of days in 2 Samuel. And over and over again, David would, would inquire of the Lord and he'd ask two questions. 
Should I, and often it was dealing with a battle, but see, we have our own battles. He said, should I go to this battle? In other words, is this your will? And will you deliver the enemy into my hand? In other words, will you empower me? See, there it is. Leadership and power. And friends, often we go to God for his power, but it's, it's for our will instead of his. You see, Jesus said, not my will, but the Father's, not my ability, but the Father's. We should say, not my will, but Christ, not my ability, but his. <clears throat> now think with me. Jesus was not obsessed with his own idea of an outcome. He was obsessed with, Father, what do you want? That's what I mean when I say, who's the goal? Who's the leader? See, we can awaken to the power. But if it's for our goal, though it might even be a good thing, a form of godliness, but denying him because whoever, whatever you, you look to is who you depend on. Looking unto Jesus, right focus, the author of faith, right dependence. Looking unto our version of what Christianity should play out as. Might even be good stuff, though sometimes we add to it. <laughs> but regardless, it's the wrong focus. Because the law has no power to enable. When we look to our version of law living, then we default back to self-dependence. That's what we noted the other night. That's Romans 7. That wrong focus brings us to, I can't do this. Who shall deliver me? You got to get back to the person. See, Jesus was focused on the will of the Father, and therefore he accessed the Father's power. Now, have we really come to this? Oh, yes, preacher, I remember when I was 12, I surrendered to the will of God. Are we living it out? And did we really surrender to him, or did we just surrender to our idea of what Christianity should look like? Now, friends, the power is in the person. And by the way, he always leads you to live right. Always. He never leads you to cave into your flesh. He never leads you to pamper your flesh. He never leads you into worldliness. But the fact is, the key is him. Because God knows where every person is on their journey. And do you know not everybody's at the same spot at the same time? And when we make the outcome, the focus, we make a box of Christianity that is a one-size-fits-all, and we force people into perpetual immaturity. Look, two-year-olds make messes, don't they? But a good parent doesn't get mad at a two-year-old for making a two-year-old mess. That's what they do. Now, if a 20-year-old is making the same kind of mess, we do have a problem. <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. There are people at different stages in their journey. So it's not going to look the same even for each person. And if we try to make it a cookie cutter because we're outcome focused, we eclipse people from the real leadership of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And friends, we don't have to be afraid of connecting people to the Holy Spirit. He knows what he's doing. And he always leads people in the paths of righteousness. And so we have to bow out and let Jesus bow in. Some of you know the name of the author, Ian Thomas. Went home to the Lord just a couple of years ago. Major Ian Thomas from Great Britain, one of the best articulators on Christ's life truth that you'll read. But he would use that terminology. Will you bow out and let Jesus bow in? Will you actually let him lead? 
You see, if you ignore him and you embrace standards, your dependence is upon the standards instead of him. But if you go to him and say, Lord, what do you want? Oh, you want that standard? Okay, now your dependence is upon him instead of the standard. Do you see the difference? One is a monastery of walls. The other is a relationship with a person. And the problem about just depending on the walls alone, then what happens is eventually life takes you outside of the monastery walls, as it were, and then you're, you're set up for a fall. But when you have a relationship with Jesus, and he says, all right, you need the standard in your life. I know you well enough. You, you won't do well, uh, so you better put the standard in. Okay, now your dependence is upon him, and he protects you in the, in the whole course of life. See, he knows what, what each one needs. And whatever he leads you to do, even if the other guy doesn't, isn't led that way, it's okay. It's personalized love and care for you. And if you're thinking, well, if I've got to have this standard and be miserable, then everybody's got to have this standard and be miserable. <laughs> no, wait a second. God knows what he's doing, folks. And he gives personalized love and care. Obviously, we have the boundaries of the written word. That's your plateau of absolute truth. You get off of that and you're in trouble. But on that plateau, the Holy Spirit personalizes applications in your life. And when he does, you better follow him. But see, now you're depending on him. But you ignore him and just set up your own little walls where your dependence is upon the walls instead of the person. And eventually, the walls won't be there and you're in trouble. But if you got Jesus, then you can navigate. Because he knows how to. He was tempted in all points, like as we, yet without sin. And you get to not my will, but yours. Not my ability, but yours. And he will navigate you in life. And he may lead you to have some, some standards of application that nobody else has. That's okay. As long as he's the leader. The point is, it's got to be him. Well, Ian Thomas tells a story about some missionaries that were in a Muslim country. Doesn't name which country it was. And they'd been there for a number of years, and they had tried to win people to Christ, and of course they had to be very careful because there's persecution and ramifications and so on, but they had worked hard. But over the years, they did not have one convert, not one, and they were very discouraged. And so, in God's providence, they met a person who pointed them to Jesus, not just as Savior, they were already saved, but as leader and power source like we're talking about tonight. They began to teach them, look, you can exchange your life for Christ's life so that I live, yet not I, but Christ lives. You can actually have his life empowering you. Well, this was all new to them. It's not new. It's been in the New Testament for years, but it was new to their understanding. And so here's what they prayed. They had a prayer meeting and said, we don't understand it all, Lord, <laughs> but we're tired and we're ready to quit. Then they prayed, you take over now. See, that's their expression of not my will, not my ability. You take over now. And if you fail, we're going home. Amen. <laughs> that's quite a prayer, don't you think? Pretty bold. But they knew this wasn't working. They understood, without me, you can do nothing. And so now they're hearing this message that with me, you can do what you ought to do. Is this really so? And so they say, you take over. We're going to yield to what you say. But if you fail, we're out of here. Well, there was a knock at the door. They answered it, and a Muslim man said, you know, 
I know you've tried to talk to me and I have not let you, but I want to hear your message. <laughs> they led him to Christ. That was their first convert. A day or so later, there's a second knock at the door. Another Muslim man said, you know, you've been trying to tell me about this Jesus. I only know him as a prophet, but you're telling me that he's more than a prophet. I'm finally ready to listen. They led him to Christ. That's number two. Day or two later, third knock at the door. Answered again. Third Muslim man said, I'm ready to listen. Tell me about your Jesus. And they led him to Christ. Then they had another prayer meeting. And they said, Lord, if this is really you, <laughs> then would you have a Muslim woman knock at the door because that would break all cultural protocol. And we would know it would have to be totally supernatural <laughs> as if the other three weren't. And you guessed it, the fourth knock at the door was a Muslim woman who said, tell me about Jesus. And they led her to Christ. Friends, I wonder what would happen in your life and mine if we would just bow out and let Jesus bow in. And what I mean by that, if we would live with this way of thinking. See, it's not a one-time thing and everything else is robotic. It's throughout the day, yielding to His leadership, trusting in His power. It's taking the fact that He is the leader. He knows what He's doing. And taking the reality that He is the power source. He never fails. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let's bow our heads for prayer. I wonder who tonight was a preacher. It's about time I bow out and let Jesus bow in. God's speaking to me. Would you raise the hand, please? Yes. Amen. Yes. Yes. I wonder who is a preacher. I've tried this surrender thing before, and maybe at times it was sincere and real, but I've gotten away from it. And I need to really embrace this Jesus way of thinking. I need to keep letting the mind of Christ be my mind, where I choose His will and His ability. And God's speaking to me as well. Would you raise the hand, please? Amen. Amen. Lord, I pray that you would help us to come to grips with where our focus is, who the leader is, really, and therefore where the power is, really. And Lord, bring us into a whole new freedom of your will in your power.